My name is John. I'm the lead pastor around here. I appreciate you guys coming on out to the early service on President's Weekend, which I learned we're celebrating George Washington's birthday, I think, which is exciting. Little known fact, he did not have wooden teeth. Um, so today, we, I don't know, maybe that's not true. I don't know. Um, we are kicking off this brand new series that we're calling Elijah. I am pumped about this. If you're very like observant, you're going to notice something. I'm not going to talk about it. But like we have never done... Elijah in the history of DHC. I don't know how we've never done this, but this is brand new content. These are brand new, well, they're not brand new stories. They're like 3,000 years old, but it's the first time we're doing them. And if you grew up in church, chances are you haven't heard of these stories in a long, long time. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about these. These are great. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a character study of Elijah, the greatest, or you could say arguably greatest, prophet in all of the Bible, in all of the Old Testament. And each week, we are going to learn more about Elijah, and hopefully, we're going to learn something about ourselves along the process. So before we dive into his story and what's going on, I thought it might be beneficial for me to give you what I'll call Elijah's resume, all right? Now, I don't know if it's his CV or the resume. I never know the difference between those two things. But I think it's just helpful to know who you're dealing with before you hear a story. It's kind of like watching a documentary on someone you've never heard of versus getting the backstory on somebody you do know who you're dealing with. So a couple of quick facts about Elijah, and you can use these at your next cocktail party. Just kind of throw them out there. I was with a group of people yesterday, and I tried these out, and I said, hey, you know, conversation lulled for a moment. I said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, he was actually named 28 times in the New Testament. Oh, didn't know that. They weren't that impressed. I said, all right, try this one on for size. Were you aware that Elijah was actually the first person in recorded history, the first person in all of Scripture to bring somebody back from the dead? Now, that got them on the hook. And I said, speaking of dead, at the end of his life, I don't know if you know this, Elijah never died. In fact, Scripture says that God sent a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire to get Elijah and to bring him into heaven, right? Now, that's a way to go. That's how I want to go. Fortunately for me, I'll probably die in the shower, okay? That's like... People talk about their greatest fear. People say, you know, public speaking is a big fear of mine. Heights, for me, it's dying in the shower. I'm just, I told my wife, I go, look, here's the deal. If I ever die in the shower, do me a favor, don't call the cops. Don't call, like, don't just light the house on fire because I can't handle that embarrassment of, like, that situation. You might say, well, you'll be dead. What do you know? Well, you know, when you get to heaven, I don't want people talking about it, so just do me a solid. All right, anyway, one last kind of factoid for your next cocktail um, party about Elijah. This Old Testament prophet, who was alive, you know, let's call it uh, 800 years before Jesus, 700 years before Jesus, he actually makes an appearance in the New Testament in one of the coolest scenes called the Transfiguration. You may have heard of that word before the Transfiguration. So in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, and he brings the old boys up onto a mountain. And there, we read, he was transfigured before them. Speaking of Jesus, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Essentially, 
they got to see Jesus kind of in his heavenly form, in all of his glory, in all of this splendor. Just then, there appeared before them Moses, our boy from the last series, and Elijah talking with Jesus. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. So that's quite a resume. I mean, when we're talking with Elijah, we're talking like a big dog here. This is like a no-nonsense kind of, this is like a big-time guy. But he didn't start out that way. That wasn't always the case. Today, what we're going to look at is Elijah's or origin story, I'll call it, where it all began. And what we're going to see today is God actually putting Elijah into what I'll call boot camp, if you will. And he's going to be training this guy to become the man of God that he needs him to be. So let me set the scene for the story and for the next four weeks. It's roughly 800 BC, as I mentioned. It's 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. That means it's roughly 700 years after Israel got the Ten Commandments. So if you're with us all last series, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Fast forward about 700 years, and you are in Elijah's time. And at this point in history, Israel has now endured 200 years or so of evil kings. So why did I highlight kings right here? Well, 700 years earlier, with the giving of the Ten Commandments, God said to the nation of Israel, hey, I, I'm your lawgiver, I'm your ruler, all right? I'm the one who's going to be in charge of you guys. But Israel, as we all start to do in life, began to look to their left and look to their right, and they wanted what everybody else had. They looked at all the other nations around them, and they looked at God, and they go, well, listen, we understand you're God and you're our ruler, but uh, <coughs> here's the thing. We want a king. You know, they got a king, and they got a king, and so we, we want what everybody else has. And God heard them say this, and obviously it hurt him. He said that they were rejecting him, but okay, he goes, that's what you want? You want a king? Fine. You can have a king, but let me just say this. When I'm in charge, God would say, everybody's status is elevated. But when man's in charge, mm, things go south. And they can go south pretty quick. And so for the last 200 years at least, for 19 consecutive kings, Israel has now been led by evil men. Now the current king, who is the antagonist in our story today and for the next four weeks, um, was a guy named Ahab. And his wife, was famous. When I tell you her name in a second, you're going to recognize his name, although you might not know his story. His wife, the queen, who was worse than he was, her name was Jezebel. And according to scripture, they were just the worst, okay? Like the worst of the worst. Take a look. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So what did he do that was so bad? What did he and Jezebel do that was so particularly bad? Well, big picture, because they did a lot. But big picture, they were the ones who were instrumental. They were the ones who effectively caused Israel, at least a portion of Israel, to worship the pagan god Baal. Now, in the Ten Commandments, if you remember from week one, God said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, right? That didn't last long. Now they're worshiping Baal. So who is Baal? Baal uh, was basically the god of the weather. 
this is the best way to kind of describe who Baal was to, to the Persian sort of world, if you will. Baal was the god of lightning. Baal was the god of wind. He was the god of rain. He was the god of fertility. He was the one that they believed controlled the seasons. He was the one that would have controlled the crops. Now, that's kind of important, and I want you to kind of file that away in the back of your mind because that's going to play prominently not just in today's story but for the rest of the series. So when it comes to worshiping Baal, uh, there were a lot of bad things that went with that, sacrificing, it's not a good scene. So needless to say, God was not happy. And he finally goes, you know what, enough's enough. Enough's enough. And that's when Elijah steps onto the scene. Now Elijah, his story begins rather abruptly, almost out of nowhere. It literally just begins like this, 1 Kings 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, now let's get some perspective on this for a second. This is the guy who appeared alongside Jesus Christ in the transfiguration. This is the guy who at the end of his life didn't die. God sent a chariot of fire to take him whole, alive, into heaven, and yet he comes onto the scene as a nobody. All we know is his name and where he's from. He's a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, right? It's like John from Fort Lauderdale in Broward County. That's effectively what we're reading here. Tishbe, for that matter, is not a cosmopolitan area, not a metropolitan area. It's obscure. It's backwoods. It's a podunk town. You can't even find it on the map if you looked for it. The only thing we know about Tishbe is that the Tishbites um, were, how do we say this, rough around the edges, right? Just like a rough around the edges, okay? Now, Gilead, the region that Tishbe is in, was not known to be a place of polish, was not known to be a place of sophistication or diplomacy. All week long, I've been thinking about Elijah and these Tishbites, and I'm just picturing Ruth from Ozark. I don't know if you watched that show. Just like, just rough, okay? Just like, you know, you're nice, like a little rough around the edges. And we see that evidenced when Elijah speaks to the king. He just gets right into it. He goes, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So he follows no royal protocol. There's no pomp and circumstance. There's no introduction. He doesn't bow. He doesn't kiss the king. He just comes out swinging, and he gives this devastating judgment to Ahab, this horrific drought that's going to take place that will absolutely cripple the economy. You know, we're suffering with inflation. This is going to be so bad, there won't even be money. It's going to be that bad. Now, here's what I love about this. Here's what I love about how God works and, and handles this whole situation. God's nation of Israel, at least a part of it, has been taken over by what theologians would call evil incarnate. You go and you read the commentaries. They truly believe that Ahab and Jezebel were were actors of Satan, if you will. They really believe it was a satanic uh, presence there in that nation. And yet, God does not raise an army to stop it. He calls on one man. And you still see that going on today. God is still searching for that, that, that person in this world who will make a difference. He is scouring the land for that one man or that one woman or that one child who is willing to stand up for what is right 
in the face of what is wrong. Because let's be honest, come on, we're friends. It's, it is easy to pick up your feet and just drift with the current of culture. Because God forbid you, 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 you say anything that mentions God's truth. You get canceled. But there's going to come a time, trust me, there's going to come a time when God is going to call on you. And I mean you to be that voice. To boldly stand up in some area of your life, in some arena of your life, and go, I'm just going to be honest with you, this is not God's will. This is not what he wants for us to be doing. Now you hear me say this and you think, well, me? I'm a nobody. I, I, I'm like, thanks for throwing me a bone here, but like, come on, let's be honest with you. This is not gonna, he's not going to tap me to do this. Elijah was a nobody from Tishbe. And you would say, well, okay, fine, you got me there. But he was superhuman. I mean, come on, it's a big difference between me and Elijah. This is a superhuman man. Not true. Look what um, James, the brother of Jesus, said about Elijah. He says, Elijah was completely human as we are. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for the next three and a half years. Spoiler alert. He had no superpowers. He had no special education. He was just a regular Joe from a small backwoods town, but he was committed to God. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, God is looking for committed people at difficult times. In our culture, in our offices, in our schools, in our factories. He's looking in our gyms. He's in your country club. He's looking for professionals and teachers and students and homemakers, people who will speak the truth, who will stand tall and stand firm and stand strong in the face of what is wrong. That's exactly what Elijah did. He stands up to this evil king. He delivers a devastating judgment. Oh, man, it was an incredible moment. I can only imagine what it was like in that room when he says that to Ahab. But take a look at what God does after that sort of mountaintop victory, if you will. Because it, it may surprise you. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God says, leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. And when you're there, okay, you will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now, I have to imagine that when Elijah got this word after what he just did, he was like, I'm sorry, what do you want me to do? You want, you want me to leave the palace? You want me to leave this city? You want me to go out in the middle of nowhere and hide? Ah, shouldn't I stay here? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I kind of keep the pedal of the metal? Shouldn't I stay in Ahab's face with this until he re relents? I mean, I don't know. Shouldn't I walk around the city and at least start declaring the judgment of the Lord so people stop worshiping Baal? But God's ways are different than our ways. God does something completely different. He takes Elijah into what I'll call a season of hiding. And today what we're going to see is God take Elijah away so that he can do so much more in him. It's almost like, it's almost like God is saying, there's so much I need to do in you because there's so much I want to do through you. So instead of leaving Elijah in that palace, God sends him into the Kareth Ravine. Now, in the Old Testament, the place names also, I mean, often have symbolic meanings. That is the case here as well. Kareth means two things. 
It means to cut off, as in to cut off from others or to cut off from blessings. Kareef also means to cut down, like literally to kind of cut down a tree. So in sending Elijah into the Kareef ravine, it's almost like he's saying to Elijah, I'm going to cut you down to size. I'm going to take you through a, through a season of breaking. I'm going to do something in you that is deep, painful, and powerful so that you can do more than you ever thought possible. And Elijah obeys. He said, so he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. Some translations say that he lived there. He is now effectively in God's boot camp. And God's goal over the next however many months that he's there is to turn Elijah from a man from Tishbe into a man of God. Now, to accomplish this, he's going to teach him a couple lessons. The first lesson that God needs to teach him is one of total dependence. God is going to bring Elijah into a season of life that will force him. Literally, he has no other choice. It will force him to rely on God and God alone. God's going to isolate him from his home, from civilization, from everything that he knew. He's going to isolate him from comfort and safety. He's going to bring him into the wilderness, and the only thing that he will have to survive on are the provisions that God gives, namely water from the brook and food delivered by ravens. Well, Elijah goes out there, and sure enough, God provided just as he said he would. We read that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. What an amazing scene. Honestly, what an amazing scene. For this to happen day in and day out. Here's what I love about this, and particularly the way that it's written. It continues to underscore God's promise to provide for his children their daily bread. You've heard this phrase before. Okay, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And of course, he was referring back to the Exodus story, and we didn't cover this, unfortunately, but there was a time when the Jews were wandering out there before they got the Ten Commandments, they were basically starving, and they were complaining, and their supplies were running out, and God says, I'll take care of you. Here's what I'm going to do every day, every day. I'm going to send you bread from heaven, manna. And it's just going to be enough for that day. You can't collect enough for the whole week. You've got to go out there every single day. And in this story, the ravens brought food. Not for a month, not for a week, not even for a full day. Just enough for the morning, just enough for the evening. God was training Elijah, and he's training us to trust him for what we need today. Might not be everything you want, but it's all you need. So God sends this guy into the desert, provides for him all the food he needs for the day, provides him the drink to keep him alive in that desert, and then something happens, something that's a little worrisome. It says sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Elijah's prayers were working. So this brook that God provided for Elijah, that Elijah looked to for security and comfort that was keeping him alive, let's be honest, 
It slowed to a trickle, and then it stopped. No more water. The brook had dried up. That's a problem. Does this experience resonate with any of you? I mean, at one time, you knew the joy of a full bank account. At one time, you knew the joy of a booming business, a budding career. But now, your brook has dried up. You used to love to exercise. Travel, you couldn't get enough of it. You loved to get on your knees and play with your grandkids. But now your body's failing you. Your brook has dried up. You had a great job. Your friends were there. Family was all around you. And then you got transferred to Fort Lauderdale. And yeah, the weather's great, but you're all alone. And you're missing home. Your brook is dried up. See, one of the lessons we learned from this dried brook incident, if you will, is that the God who gives water can also take it away. Other parts of Scripture tell us that the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. We don't like to think that way. I mean, we tend to think that once God gives us water, he should never take it away. Once God gives us a mate or gives us a spouse, they should never take him away. Once he gives us business success, he should never take it away. See, when you hit that rough spot in life, our tendency is to feel abandoned by God, to become resentful of God, and to think, how could, how could God forget about me? Now, I don't know about your story, but we now know Elijah's. He did everything that God asked of him. He was faithful to God. He trusted God. He went out in the middle of the desert for God. And, and now the water's gone. Have you forgotten about me, God? But just the opposite is true. Because it is now more than ever, folks, that we are the object of God's concern. One of the other great prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, gives us such a word of encouragement in this moment. He says, yet Jerusalem says... The Lord has deserted us. But the Lord has forgotten us. But God says, never. Never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? No. Can, can she feel no love for the child she has born? Come on. I love this, though. But even if that were possible, I would never forget you. Then watch what God says next. I mean, you talk about foreshadowing of Christ. He says, see? I have written your names on the palms of my hands. Now, I may not know what you're going through. We may not know what you're going through. Maybe no one else knows what you're going through, but God does. And I don't know what that dried book looks like in your life, but God is saying, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. I know what's going on in your life. I have not forgotten. Trust me with this. So what is this? What is that reason that God so often takes away those brooks in our lives? In my own personal experience, I think God uses those dried brook moments to catapult us into a new chapter in life, into a brand new direction. What I see in Elijah's life, what I saw in my own life, is that God often removes what we knew in order to get us somewhere new. I feel Baptist with that one. Because sometimes, let's be honest, 
We're all friends here. Sometimes the comfort of that brook prevents us from growing. Sometimes the comfort of that brook and the safety of that brook prevents us from serving God at greater levels. And I'm not saying that what you were doing was bad, not at all. But what I am saying is that sometimes you got to prune that which is good to grow that which is better or that which is great. And it's like God is saying to Elijah and to us, I am drying up that brook because I need you to move on. Because I have a better idea for how you should spend this season of your life. Here's what it looked like for Elijah. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed, just like the ravens, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. We don't have time to read the whole rest of the story. So let me give you the TLDR, the too long didn't read. Elijah goes, travels, let's call it 100 miles across a barren wasteland, and he gets to Zarephath. And when he enters those city gates, he sees the woman. She's there. He sees the woman, just like God said. There she is. He walks right up to her. He goes, ma'am, ma'am, ma'am. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Would you mind? diner, sorry. Would you mind bringing me some water, bringing me some bread? I mean, he is pumped. Once again, God has provided just as he said he would. But this woman, like the rest of the land, has now been affected by Elijah's prayer to stop that rain. She says to him, are you the, I'm sorry, are you the only one that doesn't know? We've had no rain. We're in a famine. There, there, there is no bread. Can you go back real quick for me? Thank you. He goes, there is no bread. And she says to him, look, she goes, I have, pull up for him, sorry. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a little oil in a jar. Now, wait to see what she says next. What she says next, honestly, is like a line right out of a Charles Dickens novel. She says, I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Sorry I asked, okay? But because of what God did in Elijah's life in that ravine, he looks at this impossible situation and he speaks faith into it. He says, ma'am, you will not die. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home just like you said you were going to do, but first, make me my meal. And in the name of God, I proclaim that you will never run out of flour. You will never run out of oil until that rain returns. We read that she went away and did as Elijah had told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Once again, God provided. But then sometime later, Scripture says tragedy struck. Her son died. And she blamed Elijah. She, she, she said, you know, your very presence in my home is a judgment because of what I must have done in the past. This is your fault. But, but because God had been doing something powerful in Elijah's life, Elijah knew that God could do something powerful here. So he says, give me your son. He replied. And he took him from her arms and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his bed. 
Scripture says that he, he stretched himself over this child three times, and then he cried out, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And for the very first time in Scripture, that boy came back to life. Now, why did this happen? Because God took Elijah into that Kareth ravine where he was cut down. Because God took him into a season of dependence where he could only rely on God. And then God dried up that brook so that Elijah would leave there and go where God wanted him to be, to a widow's house, to perform this amazing miracle. The story today opens up with meeting Elijah. And nobody from Tishbe. But look how it ends. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. God used some really rough patches in this man's life to shape him into a true man of God. Next week, we're going to see exactly why Elijah needed to go through that Kareth ravine. We're going to see a man who would need not just faith, but tested faith to do something amazing for the Lord. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every week with this word on the screen, because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So there's an old-time pastor who said something that I thought was so fitting for today. Now, before I put it on the screen, let me just say this. What you're going to read is both encouraging and yet jarring. It, it's going to hit you and you're going to be like, ooh, I don't know if I like that. A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Some of you here today, I think would say, you know, I didn't know this, but I, I think I'm in that Kareth Ravine right now. I'm there. I'm there. I I'm being broken. It's like I'm being cut down. I'm, I'm isolated. The things that I used to trust in, I, they, they've been removed. 2,800 years ago, God showed us that before he can use us, he needs to mold us. He needs to refine us. He needs to train us. And sometimes, He's got to break us down, bringing us to our limits. And I don't know what's happening in your life, but maybe, just maybe, today God is saying to you, I'm doing something in you. And I know it isn't pleasant, and I know this hurts, but I'm doing something in you. There's a, there's a preparatory work happening in your life right now. I am teaching you something that you couldn't learn any other way. I'm doing a work in you that is deep, painful, and powerful so that you could do more than you ever thought possible. And when I'm finished, when I'm finished, people will look at you and say, wow, there goes a woman of God. There goes a man of God. There goes a child of God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to begin this study 
of Elijah's life, particularly looking at a, a season of life, Lord, where you cut him down, where he was forced to rely on you and you alone, God. And I just pray that for those of us right now who would say, I didn't realize it, but I know it now, I am in that Kareth ravine. The brook is dried up. Things that I once relied on have been removed. I just, I, I, I've been tempted to cry out, Lord, have you forgotten about me? But Lord, I pray that today we would be encouraged. We would know that our names are inscribed in the palms of your hands. You know exactly what we're going through. You are in charge. You have a plan for our life. Help us to trust you to move in us, to do what needs to be done, to clear out the junk, to, to strengthen our faith, God. Give us the power to submit and to let you work in our lives. Change us from the inside out to make us children, men and women of God. We ask all this in Jesus' name.